Hey homies, it's Michelle Bennett, graphic designer, turn marketer, turn interior decorator, and apparently now podcast host. That's right, peeps. I selfishly started a podcast so that I would have an excuse to pick the brains of designers, decorators, and industry experts so that I can get to the next level. And the best part is you guys are coming with me. You know what's annoying? When you record a podcast episode for at least 40 minutes, I am almost certain that I answered about half of the questions that were posted in my group. And when I finally decided, hey, I should go peek over um, because I was reading the questions off my laptop and I was no longer in GarageBand. So I didn't know whether it was still recording. So I thought, you know what, maybe I should head on over to GarageBand and just take a little peeky-poo and see what's going on there. I'll tell you what was going on. Absolutely nothing was going on. So I'm going to do it all over again. And I'm not excited about it. No, just kidding. I'm so excited about it. You know why? Because it's going to be even better this time around. (laughs) So here's to hoping. Anyways, guys, thank you so much for tuning in to another week. Um... This week I'm doing something a little different. I am going to do a solo episode where I did a call for questions in my Facebook group, Business Homies. If you're not a member there, then I really suggest that you request access. You just go to Facebook, search Business Homies, and that is where I share a lot of my journey. So, um, you know, you're getting a little bit of that on the podcast, but mostly the podcast is for me to talk to other designers and learn all the great things about how they make their business so awesome. Uh, but in my group is where I go live and kind of share the ups and downs from week to week. So a couple of weeks ago, I posted the concept of a Q&A uh, podcast episode, and I did a call for questions. So I'm going to answer those questions now. And this time, though, this time, it will record. Okay. <clears throat> take two. And here's to hoping it's the final take. All right, guys. So here we go. Rebecca asks, okay, I'm going to, oh, it's going to be great. I'm going to say all the things I said again. Okay. So earlier today, I posted in my Facebook group a video, as I do, like I just said, um, sharing just a few updates about some things that I have done that are different. And I shared the fact that I upped my consultation rate, my consultation fee to 425. So I was previously, okay, I've had some wine, I won't lie. (laughs) I was previously at 350. And, um, I listened to my podcast episode with Kimberly Selden on her podcast, where I did a little bit of role playing with her. I tried to pretend to be the client and get her to respond to me like I was a client. And she did a little bit of coaching as she do. And she really suggested that I up my consultation fee to 500. Well, I'm not mentally prepared for that madness. So I upped it to 425. I posted it on my website. And so far, I think I've charged three different clients that fee, and it's literally been a non-issue. Nobody, nobody bats an eye. Not that I can see them on the other end of the phone when I'm talking to them, but seriously, it's been a real non-issue. And um, and so Rebecca asked as a response to that, how, uh, "What do you include in your consultation? Are there deliverables aside from for aside for your meeting and any ideas that you may share on site?" So. 
literally nothing changed in my consultation other than the fact that I am charging 425. So for me, what happens is I do the discovery call, I talk to the client, then I schedule the consultation if it seems like it makes sense. And then I basically try to tell them and manage their expectations on what they can expect during that consultation, aka we're not going to design your whole house, not going to source your entire living room in two hours. Because if I could do that, then I would be a hero. And I'm not a hero. So, um, so basically, I just manage the expectations. But realistically, I determine whether or not they are a full service client potentially, or just a consultation only. If they were consultation only, then we're really going to try to plow through their questions and really try to give them ideas and solutions to the questions that they have. Um, And that probably would be followed up with an email with additional comments and notes with regards to the consultation so that they have a takeaway. Um, But if they're a full service, which is probably like 90, 80 to 90% of my consultations, they want to potentially do full service with me. And so um, if I'm doing that, then the deliverable is the proposal which is not a furniture proposal, obviously, but just the proposal where I outline the service proposal, we'll call it. I outline the potential costs of, you know, what they need outside of accessories, um, you know, potential timeline, my process, and then basically what my estimated design service fee would be. And that's really it. Uh, So really nothing more than that. Um, I am, if you listen to my most recent episode, uh, my podcast with Carla Aston, then you know that she was a, she's really a big advocate of trying to vet your clients early. So I do think I'm going to roll in some more vetting and work in the early phases to really get a gauge for the type of client I'm working with, um, that my aesthetic really aligns, but I haven't totally determined what that's going to look like. So I hope that answers your question, Rebecca. All right, Mylene, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, I think Mylene might be a newer member and she asked a few questions, not on the thread, but questions that I wanted to answer on the podcast. So she says, can I ask two questions? I looked at your website, love it by the way, thank you. And I was wondering what you you use as a plugin to allow customers to answer your pre-qualifying questions by form. So I'm glad you asked that question. So first things first, um, my my website is built in WordPress. Um, and if somebody's building a new website, I would probably suggest Squarespace. Squarespace? Yeah, Squarespace. Um, it does have a bit of a learning curve, WordPress, uh, and whatever. So that wasn't the question you asked me, though. Um So I used to, I'm just going to give you a little more information than you've asked for, but I used to have uh, a link to schedule a discovery call with me right away. And I decided to test out something new, which I've been doing for, let's call it a bit a month now, maybe a month and a half, where I use Dubsado, which is, um, what would I call it? It's kind of like a, an automation tool, maybe. I would maybe mildly call it a CRM. Maybe that's what they call it. I don't know. But basically, um, if you want to learn more about this tool, I would recommend that you do a search in my Facebook group for Dub Sado, D-U-B-S-A-D-O. I did a whole video on that 
um, how I use it, how amazing this tool is, and why you might want to consider using it. But one of the features that they have is that you can create forms that can get embedded into your website. And I decided I'm going to remove the ability to book a call right away. And instead, I'm going to collect their information uh, and ask a bunch of key questions. And then once they submit that, an automated email gets sent to them. So basically, they get an email that says, thank you so much. I hope to talk to you soon. I would love it if you would read, like, I want to make sure that you've checked out my portfolio. And there's a link to my portfolio um, that you read about my process, link to my process page, and then read these FAQs. And the FAQs is the biggest one. I recently updated my minimum project fee to $5,000, no matter how small the project is. Thank you, Carla Aston, for that nugget. Um, I had originally had $3,500, and it was also inspired by Carla. <laughs> but uh, I upped it to $5,000, and I'm very glad that I did. Uh, because the truth is, I really do want bigger budget clients, and I think that's a good way to weed people out early on. It also talks about how long the process will take. It talks about what's a decorator versus a designer and where, you know, how I, I can help. And it really just kind of sets the groundwork for, you know, the type of client that I'm looking for. Are you decisive? That's what I want. Da, 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 whatever. So then it's kind of like, okay, you know, if you've read all that, then you can click here to link a call or to, to book a call. And so, um, using a recent lead that I shared in the group, uh, as an example, I got a form filled out and what's great, you get an email when people fill out that form. So it's great because it shows up right in your email and you can get really excited, which is what I did. And that's what I shared in the group. Um, so I knew exactly what she was thinking her budget would be, which was 50 to 75 K for furnishings, no reno, maybe a little bit of reno. She has sent me pictures of her, of her space. And I think we might do a little bit of, of facelifting, but anyway, um, so I, I then, um, she actually did a day later book the call. And then when I talked to her, I asked her, did you, you know, did you have a chance to review the links that I sent? And then she said, yes. And it's just really doing a lot of the pre-qualifying work for me. And that's kind of what I want to do. I want to do a little bit more pre-qualifying early on. And then so what, by the time I get to a call, hopefully they know more information. So hopefully that answers your question. It's a really great tool. I would suggest looking into it. Um, it's, it's a really awesome tool. And you can test it out with three leads if you want before committing. Okay, next question. Okay, so after they send them to you, what is your next step? Call the customer within 24 hours by phone and say yes or no, or get the payment and book initial consultations. Okay, so follow up to what I just said. They fill out the form, they get an automated email immediately. Then that form, because I, I would add them to kind of my list, like, okay, I need to follow up with them maybe in two days. That being said, I'm also going to be adding a little bit more automation so that if they didn't book a call, you know, two days after they initially filled out the lead, then another email would be sent. But I haven't sorted all that out yet, but I am going to do that. But right now, manually, if I notice that they haven't called or scheduled something about a day or two later, I would do a follow-up email. And then the end result is hopefully they schedule a call. I don't like to cold call anybody. Like, don't give me your number. I'm not going to just call you. I like to be mentally prepared, get it in my calendar, and then I can prepare the way I need to for that call. Um, and then from there on the call, we figure out, uh, they tell me all the things that they need to tell me about what they're looking for. 
And then I determine at that time whether they're a good fit or not. And then from there, I would explain what my process is. And then I would say, you know, uh, at that point, they hopefully know exactly how much a consultation is. Um, and I'm basically just saying, like, you know, do you want to schedule a consultation? Yes. Okay, great. That fee is $425 plus tax. I'm going to send you an invoice after we schedule, the call, uh, schedule that consultation today. You're going to get an invoice today. And one thing, guys, I'm reading a book called Getting Things Done. And in the book, it's called The GTD Method. And in the book, it, it's a really good book. I'm only halfway through. But they talk, he talks about anything that comes up in your day that can take you two minutes or less to do, do it right away. So it's the, called the two-minute rule, I guess. And so this is a really good example. I'm not going to put off invoicing the client. I'm going to hang up the phone. I'm going to go into my QuickBooks. I'm going to issue that invoice right away. Number one, to the client, it looks like you got your shit together. Um, I'm also using Dubsado, going to move that client that I just had in my discovery uh, discovery call funnel. So what's really important to know is that Dubsado allows you to bucket people based on where they are in your process. So for me, it goes lead, discovery call, consultation, proposal, and then you're either a dead lead or maybe a future lead, or you become a client in phase one, then phase two, then phase three. So for me, after the discovery call, you book a, a consultation, I'm going to move you into the consultation funnel, and then you're going to get an automatic email that outlines your homework items. And I'm going to, like I said, issue the invoice. So for that, that just looks really good because you like you got your, your shit together and that, um, you know, you are professional and you say you're going to do, you do what you say you're going to do. So that's kind of what that looks like. Okay, let's see. And as far as the red flags are concerned, so she also asked, can they book directly and pay online? But, but what about red flags? So so to answer your question, I no longer have the ability for people to directly book a consultation. For me, I just know that I want to talk to people beforehand, really set the expectations up. Um, so I don't have anywhere on my website where you can directly book a consultation. It all is going to go through the automated funnel until you get on a call with me and then we go from there. So hopefully I'll weed out red flags beforehand. Okay, so Mylene actually then asked another question. What are your booking procedures? Reservation for their place for a customer if you are already busy. He must reserve his place by paying a certain amount. How do you work in this case? Okay, so this has been, if you've been following me for any sort of time, then you know that I have been asking people like for guests on my podcast to talk about how do you work your calendar for knowing when to schedule people in and how many projects to juggle at once. And I will be honest, um, early on when I didn't charge enough, I juggled way too many clients. At one point, it was 12 clients at once at varying stages. And you know what? For some people that's gravy train and that's cool. All the power to you. For me, that is me lying in bed at night filled with panic and anxiety and unable to sleep. It takes me back to my corporate time when I am feeling like I'm letting everybody down and it's just a real bad place for me. So the first thing I'm going to say is charge enough so that you don't feel like you have to juggle more clients than you can. And for me, I want to juggle enough clients where I feel like I'm giving them the best service and making them feel like a priority. And realistically for me, that's a good four projects in kind of like the beginning stages. Um, but when I had a podcast, I had a podcast call with 
Anna Cole, who was, I want to say, episode 13. And she shared a nugget with me. So I used to schedule clients for phase one in a four-week period. So for context, the way I work with clients is a three-phased approach. Phase one is design to presentation. Phase two is execution purchasing. Phase three is finishing touches. It's an offshoot of Kimberly Selden's 15 steps. Mine is 10 steps and mine is a little bit tweaked to work for me. So phase one used to be four weeks. So phase one, I have a Gantt chart. If you're not familiar with a Gantt chart, Google it. But it's basically just an Excel spreadsheet um, by week or day, week. And I just have kind of all of my projects by client name and how long they'll each take by phase. And then I have kind of like my uh, next up, like project, you know, if I have four clients already, then I have project, 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 like blank projects to indicate kind of when I can start them in my calendar. Um, And I actually, going back to talking about the consultation, before I get on a call, discovery call with anybody, I assess my my, my project calendar and I determine, number one, when I can take them in for a consultation because I want to be able to say quickly, great, I'm not available to do a consultation, maybe for two weeks for whatever reason. Normally, I can do it the week after or even sometimes maybe the same week, but that's pretty rare anymore. Um, and then I say, but I know that you said that you wanted to get started on your project right away, but unfortunately, my, you know, I have my current project load only allows me to get started at the end of November. So for example, right now, if I was going to start a new project, I'd probably be starting in the middle of November to end of November. And I want to just kind of put that out there and I want to make sure that the client knows that it's all about managing expectations. And what I also say in that case is I say, you know, I would be surprised if you could find a designer that could get started right away. And realistically, I'm not really convinced you'd want to work with a designer that could start effective immediately because that would make me wonder, um, kind of what kind of workload they really have. So, you know, sure, maybe you're a newer designer, you're still a great designer and you can start right away. But this is just my way of being able to sell the fact that me not being able to start right away is actually a good thing. So it's all about spin, right? So that's kind of my way to say like, okay, I can't get started right away. But you know what, that's a good thing, because I'm busy because I am working with clients often, and I have a hefty workload. And that hopefully builds your trust with me. Um, But anyway, so what would happen, so for example, I only do two finishing touches slash installations depending. It could be a full installation or just finishing touches, which is working with a client who already has a finished space that I'm I'm coming in to accessorize. I only do two of those a month because those are extremely exhausting and they eat up a lot of my week and I can't do more than that and juggle clients in the phase one stages. So I only do two of those a month. So I'm already booked two of those a month till the end of the year because generally speaking, any clients that I'm working with full service, it's pretty rare that I work with a full service client who doesn't get me to do finishing touches. So basically uh, those are already accounted for. So I had a consultation last week where I basically uh, worked with somebody who already had kind of, she really just wanted a consultation, but then it was determined that she would want me to do finishing touches for her. I looked at my calendar. I said, well, realistically, I can't do this until January, but I'm going to get you a proposal out by the end of this week. Uh, when did I meet with her? I met with her either maybe Monday. I I'm drawing blank right now. It might've been the end of, I, it was actually end of last week. And then I said, I had my presentation on Wednesday, yesterday. So 
I didn't have time to deal with the proposal. So I told her I'd get it to her at the end of next week. And what I'm going to say for her is um, basically, you know, here's your fee, 3500 whatever it ends up being. But uh, in order for you to hold your spot in my calendar, there's a $500 uh, non-refundable deposit, which holds your spot. Non-refundable because if I'm working projects around her, then I need to know she's really committed. Um, and if she pulls out that I'm somewhat compensated for the fact that my entire schedule was working around her. So that's how I would approach that. And anybody too, if I was working, so if I am not able to get started on a project for a month, then I still go through the proposal the same way I normally would. And they pay 70% of my fee up front. And what I might do is kind of hold on to that in a separate account in, in my business account and not give, like actually use that money until I start the project. Cause you just never know. And I hate to spend money and then a project and then, and then a client for whatever reason have to kind of pull out last minute, excuse me. Um, so that's how I would work that. Now, if a client was not being scheduled in for a couple of months and the project was, let's say, a $10,000 project, I would probably request, um, well, I actually did just do this, but then I ended up starting it right away, so it was irrelevant. But because I wasn't going to be starting it right away, I just asked for a $1,000 uh, non-refundable deposit to hold a spot in the calendar and then call it a couple weeks before that project would start. I would issue, issue the rest of that 70% of the full design fee that I had estimated. So I hope that answers your question. Okay, moving on to Lenore. So Lenore posted a question, which I answered in the group, but it's a question that I would like to, to answer on the podcast episode because I just think it's going to be really helpful to other people. Um, you know what? I'm going to circle back real quick. So when I recorded this earlier today, I, I did have a disclaimer, and I did not say it earlier, and I'm going to say it now. Um I'm, I'm not an expert. I'm not a business coach. I'm not an expert. I've only, I've been in business just over two years. I'm sharing you guys with you guys, my experiences and what has worked for me, but that's not to say it will work for everybody. And anything I suggest, you know, I strongly suggest that you implement it by making sure it makes sense for you. And I'm not saying it's the be all and end all, but these are just my experiences. So I just think it would be irresponsible of me not to say that. And I said it the last time I recorded, but I forgot to say it this time. So there you go. Okay. Lenore, I'm having a hard time charging my clients for time I spent overseeing installation of artwork and window treatments, lighting, etc. I can tell them how I want things, but there's a lot of time where I'm just waiting until I am needed. I can charge double for fabric and fabrication to make up for the time spent at installation for window treatments. But what about everything else? So Lenore, I'm going to, I wanted to say this on here and reply to this because this was a very recent experience that has me feeling passionate about this topic, but there's a, there's two parts in this that I want to, I want to kind of talk about. Number one, for me, and this is, everybody has a different business model, but I'm going to give you my thoughts on product and your markup revenue, your margin, your markup profit, whatever you want to call it. I'm going to explain how I do product sales and my philosophy behind it. So I, get, I take a client to presentation and let's say we have $30,000 worth of um, products to be invoiced. Most of those are trade sources, so I'm getting 40%, let's call it. 
And I'm, but then my goal is always to try to get the, give the client the product at less than retail. So yeah, you're getting a benefit from working with me because you also have spent a lot of money, um, for my services, but that is not to be minimized. You're spending a lot of money on my services because I'm giving you, I'm giving you a huge value there. Never do I ever think that a client who, okay, so backtrack. I tried to explain this earlier and I didn't feel like I did a good job either, but I'm going to try it again. Um, $30,000 worth of uh, product, let's say. And let's just say 8K of that, because this is a recent uh, recent example of a project that I just did. Let's say 8K of that is my profit from trade sources. In my, in my mind, none of that eight grand should offset any of my time to do any of the design work. And you might be wondering why, but that $30,000 that they spent got them the product, got them the product that they would have paid a little bit more for retail if they hadn't gone through me. And it, it gave them the product. The entire value for that is the product. And it doesn't make any sense to me to have that offset. In, like, it's kind of in what world should they get to get product, but then also part of my design services included in the price of a product that they could have bought retail with none of that. That's, that to me is a win-win for the client and not really a win for me. So my philosophy on all of my product margin is that that is 100% profit. That's my business model as if I was a retailer, just like a retailer um, makes profit off of that the same way and does not have to offer and extend additional services for that to be of value. So I'm basically trying to say that, no, I don't think that you should charge double for your, I think you should charge double for your fabric because you get 50% off and the retail price of the fabric is double what you paid for it. But I definitely do not think that that should cover any of your time. So this is, this is something that happened to me recently. So that's kind of thing one. (laughs) Basically, I just think you want, I think that you should really think about rationally, and I don't want to say rationally, because that's like saying people who don't do this aren't being rational, I think to each their own. But I really think like, if you think about it, there's really no reason why somebody should get a a drape for the retail price, but also some service like some of your design time. That's, that's so above and beyond what they should be getting for the price of the retail drape. And that's they shouldn't be getting a double whammy, there's no win for you there. So so there's that. Um, so, and then number two, they should absolutely be char- uh, paying for your time. And I'm going to give you, and I'm going to give you an example as to why. And if you don't have one of these examples for yourself, then I would just pretend that my example is yours and use this as a reason. And I think the reality is most of us do things a certain way until something horrible happens that then you can get really passionate behind why you shouldn't do it a certain way. So I had wallpaper installed in a powder room at a client's house. This happened probably about a month and a half ago, maybe two months ago. I, my, my sense of time is really off. So probably none of the times I'm telling you are even remotely close to what they actually are. But anyways, I did not go 
I was like, you know what? This guy installs for me all the time. It's no big deal. Number one, the wallpaper, I did not check it before I got it. That was a mistake because all of this would have been avoided, number one, if I had gotten the wallpaper to my house and I had checked it and then just delivered it to the client. So that's number one uh, because the resolution of the wallpaper was terrible. Number two, um, it was a mural and it didn't line up. So it was a hot mess. I won't get into the specifics, but just know that it was a hot mess. And after it was installed, the installer texted me and I, and then I, that after it was already in or half in, that's when I decided, no, it was totally in. And that's when I decided, okay, I'm going to be there. I'm not far. I'm going to come right now. I'm going to check it out. I walk in, I look at the wallpaper installed. The resolution of this wallpaper looks terrible. The installation looks terrible because it's a mural didn't line up. It's a whole thing. It was just a whole thing. So the wallpaper cost about $1,000. The installation cost probably $200. I don't know how much it cost. And, um, and basically, then I would have to have the wallpaper removed. So let's start out doing the math. Let's call that uh, $1,000 for the wallpaper, $250 for the installation. Another and Anybody I reached out to, to to actually remove the wallpaper, I was getting quoted like $1,000. But I found somebody who did it for about $200 or $100. I can't remember. So let's call that $1,500. Okay, so $1,500, if I had been on site that day, it would have never even hit the wall. So I could have just taken the, rolled up the wallpaper. Now, granted, the wallpaper um, company did refund us, so no big deal, but still, it was, a, it was a big pain in the butt. I could have just said, the resolution looks like crap, called the vendor, said, hey, we're not happy with this. We didn't put it up. I'm happy to send it back, whatever you want, do whatever you want with it. Number two... I didn't have to deal with removing the wallpaper, having an installation fee, and then having to fix the wall um, once it was removed and damaged. So after that happened, I realized that in my contract, I would add the fact that anytime anything's being installed, I'm going to be on site. And you are going to pay my hourly rate for that and a minimum of an hour. Because even if I just show up for 10 minutes, you're paying a minimum of an hour. And I'm going to explain the exact story I just said. Uh, my being there, nothing might happen. But it is the assurance that $1,500 of a mistake or more don't happen as a result. And the same thing actually happened with a, uh, a drapery installation as well. Um, we ended up having to go back. It was fine, but I wasn't there on site for the entire thing. So, so basically what I'm saying is... If a client doesn't want to pay you to be on site, then I would suggest having a form ready that says, that's okay. If you don't want to have me on site, I just, I do need to get you to sign this and just says that if anything should go wrong, that you are going to have to deal with whatever happens. And it's, it's really not, it's really not up to me. And to be honest, I'd really rather not even have that conversation. I would just say in the contract phases, when I'm reading my contract, in the consultation, which I have started doing, thank you, Kimberly Selden. Um, and it's, I would basically say, you know, I'm on site anytime anything is installed and you are paying me minimum hour for that. But here's the reasons why. And unfortunately, it's really not a negotiable because in my experience, this saves clients thousands of dollars um, as a result. So I hope that's helpful. Um, it's a very recent experience for me. And to me, that's once you explain it that way, clients are going to get on board with it. 
All right. Christy asks, how do you present your design plans to clients, not the proposal, but the actual design and furniture selections, et cetera? In person, online, how have you tweaked over the past couple of years? Um, I would say that the biggest tweak is that now I have a lot of samples with me, but I, it hasn't changed that dramatically for me other than maybe my presentations look better. But basically, I definitely, I schedule two hours. It's pretty much, unless it's just one room, it's always a two-hour presentation. I show up with as many samples as I can. Um, I show them the presentation on my laptop, and I, and I spin it that it's me saving paper. But going forward, I want to start printing the presentation for them because, like, they're paying good money, and that just looks better. <laughs> but my printer ink ran out, and I've just been too much of a cheap ass to spend the $500 to get new ink. Um, but it's going to happen soon. But um, but anyway, so then I take them through everything. I, I take them through the first things I would do. Well, first I would talk about what was the objective that we were trying to achieve because you want to remind them of what they agreed the objective was because – you can always go back to that. Well, you know, you, you're saying this, but remember the objective was this kind of thing. Then I would go into starting from the entryway when I first walk into the house, taking them through whatever areas we're doing. It would start with the floor plan. Uh, so I, I take a screenshot of the floor plan. I put it in there. I then go into elevations. Then I go into a schematic board, which is kind of like just um, uh, all of the elements brought together on one board per room. Um, and then I would then also show them the tear sheets, which are what I get. They get output from Ivy because I use Ivy as my purchasing slash proposal tool. And um, so then I can show them closer, uh, more detailed images in the tear sheets. So it's kind of like you have a schematic board, but you also have all the elements individually with their prices attached. And then I do that on a room by room basis. And then at the very end, the, it'll say, uh, we talk about the budget. So this was your, the budget that we talked about. It wasn't the firm budget because in my proposal, service proposal, I always outline that this isn't firm. This is just to help you directionally, you know, mentally quantify what you might be spending. But then I say, this is where we're at. And I also include an estimate for freight and shipping which is a new thing since I had a coaching call with Veronica Solomon. So um, now I basically roll that right into my furnishings proposal. So for example, yesterday I had $30,000 proposal and included in that was $3,000 estimated for shipping for my receiver and all that good stuff. And honestly, guys, people don't really have an issue with that as I thought they would if you lay the groundwork in the consultation, which is what I've been doing. Uh, it's all about management, uh, managing expectations. Um, and then we kind of go through that and we talk a little bit about the budget. And then I just say, you know what, I'm going to send you these furnishing proposals digitally. And then the next steps, um, unless they basically during the presentation said, everything's great. We're moving forward. I would collect a check then. Otherwise I would say we're, you know, mostly there's always like a few tweaks that need to happen. So I say, uh, you know, by Monday, if you could submit the proposals and by using Ivy, they can actually toggle approved or not approved per item. And then I say like, uh, follow it up with some additional comments in an email. And then I'll determine when we can meet again for an hour to go over the revisions. And then that's when I'm going to collect the check. And guys, truthfully, this is how this went. This is exactly the things I said yesterday. It's new. I've done this twice now. And it's amazing. It's, it's the most amazing process. So anyway, um, 
I will say, Christy, I am very interested to hear how people present. I don't feel like I do the best job, uh, but you know, you just do what you can and keep improving it as you go. Okay. Uh, let's see what Robin asked, what did you find was your biggest client or process related learning curve? The biggest learning curve was billing, charging, being able to know how much to charge, how to feel confident in saying that. And then, um, probably this whole concept of furnishing proposals uh, collecting the check at the presentation and doing a receiver. I had no idea that was a thing. And guys, I did like a $60,000 project where furniture just trickled into that client's house, like willy nilly. And that's another example of doing something the hard way and now being very passionate. Like when I talk to clients early on, if they, I, to me, it's, it's like, this is how I do it. And, and to be honest, so that big, the builder project I have, I, I have on the go right now. Um, if you're in my group, you're familiar, but I just took on my very first new build. Um, it's very exciting time. Uh, but it's also going to have a furnishing element. And I told them, you know, they're probably going to, they're going to be outfitting their entire home, I think, because none of the furniture they have is in the aesthetic. And we're probably looking at a good hundred K in furnishings. And I just said, you know what, this is, you know, this is how I work. A percentage of your budget is going to go to an estimate for shipping and delivery and installation. And to be honest, it's, it's a really non-negotiable. Like I'm not willing to do a furnishing project of this scale without that. It's a complete and utter nightmare. And then that's when I would kind of go in and try to elaborate as to why it's a complete and utter nightmare. And I'm sure that they'll buy in. But ultimately for me, I am 100% not willing to do I'm, you know, there could be exceptions on a smallish project that I could be willing, willing to make, but I'm definitely not willing to do that on a full house. So I would say that was probably the biggest learning curve. Um, even just like the trade accounts and things like that. All right. Kina, I don't know if I'm pronouncing your name right. Um, in the beginning, how did you guesstimate how many hours it would take for you uh, for a project? Um, I didn't know. I had no idea. Uh, Innately, I knew that that a project should be broken up into phases and given them steps and indicating kind of what would happen in each step. So I'm just, a, I'm very left and right brain. So I'm very lucky to be creative, but also pretty systematic and um, process driven. So I, I kind of knew that and I knew that, okay, well, if I'm going to estimate hours, then I need to list out all the things I think need to happen and then associate a time to that. Now, the only problem with that was one, confidence. I didn't have the confidence. Even if I did do all that, it didn't mean I was being truly realistic with the numbers I was attaching because I would assume people wouldn't pay those numbers. Number two, I also just didn't know how long things would take and I didn't know steps that I would need to do that, that I would need to do. So my best advice on this front is you just need to start doing it. You, you do have to try to sit down and be really realistic with your numbers. Like don't just randomly throw out a number, sit down, make an exhaustive list of your process and what you need to do for a project or what you think you need to do. And that's your starting point. And then you continue to add and build to it as you learn more. Um, and then associate a time frame. And I will just say that whatever that time frame you're putting in, times it by two, times it by three, and just 
just at the very least, give yourself, give yourself the, the freedom to be able to charge more if you go over the hours by including that in your project proposal. Don't say it's a hard and firm fee. It's, it's, I estimate these hours. If I exceed these hours, you will be billed hourly. But uh, let me tell you, um, for an entire year, I undercharged grossly on every single project. And it's really, really important. I did track my time from the beginning at the time, the time I was using my hours and, um, I changed to, from my hours to toggle now, but I always tracked my time, but fear would set in and I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't actually check it. But now it's pretty diligent. Every Friday I check my hours and I do a, a checkpoint to make sure I'm all good. So funny story, yesterday's presentation, they, they paid 70% of that fee up front. So they paid 70%, which ended up being about 37 hours. And I normally would check my hours before going into presentation. And I normally would invoice for the final 30 the day before presentation. The reason for that is if the presentation doesn't go as well as you hope, you're going to lose all confidence in sending an invoice after. Send it out before, maybe not on the day of, but send it out the day before um, and just get that out of the way so you don't have to worry about the confidence issue afterwards. Uh, but anyways, I, I went, I normally track, check my time just to see like, how am I doing in case they ask? But I didn't this time. But when I got home last night, I checked my time. I went to check what the 70%, how many hours that was. And it was 37. And then I checked my hours until presentation and it was 36 and a half. And I thought that was freaking hilarious. Granted, I think we can all admit that there's definitely time that, that doesn't get tracked in those hours that are tracked. There's always something, whether it's five minutes here or there, they don't totally track. So it's not like absolutely perfect, but you got to get really diligent. And the thing with, the thing with figuring out how many hours it's going to take, it's, you just got to start trying and being ready to make mistakes, but being ready to track and test and make sure that you're, you're changing and fixing it when you realize how much money you're leaving on the table. It's important because God, I have so many things to say. Um, if you, if you don't, if you start out undercharging like I did and you have bills to pay, like I did, I have a mortgage in Toronto that requires a dual income to pay it. If you're undercharging, you're going to chase more clients. Like I said, I think I, I'm confused now on whether it was a conversation in my earlier non-recorded podcast or earlier uh, just now. Uh, in my first year, there was a point when I had 12 clients in the, on, in the works at the same time. And the reason I did that wasn't because I wanted 12 clients because it was a nightmare, but it was because I needed more money to pay my bills and I was trying to reach certain goals in the month. And that is not the way to do it realize that people are going to pay what you uh, set your worth at. And the people who aren't are not the people you want to work with anyway. And as soon as you can just accept that mentally, it's so much easier to just say, hey, you know what, I got to know, whatever, no big deal. The next person's going to say yes, and I'll be so happy because they're going to be an even better client. It's if you can like train your brain to think that way, it just makes it all so much easier. All right, George, I have a question. How do you recommend art for your clients? I find that it's the trickiest bit given budgets, personal preferences. It can hold the process up of finishing off a space. So I would love to know how you do it. Okay. This is a really good question. And one that I've had conversations with, um, with another friend, designer friend of mine, and I don't really have it totally nailed down. I will say that 
again, for me, it's managing expectations. Early in the process, I talk to them and I ask them, I say, what are your feelings about art? Do you, are you the, are you guys looking to invest in art that's very meaningful to you and you want some investment pieces or are you more about getting art on your walls that looks good, but is budget conscious? I would say nine out of 10 of my clients say budget conscious, but looks good, which is great because I'm really good at that. Um, and then every now and then I, the biggest I've had a client invest or willing to invest was about two grand for a piece, not for multiple pieces for, for one key piece. So it's important to lay that groundwork first. The next thing you want to do, I talked about um, how I do a style survey with my clients. So if you do a search in my Facebook group, uh, search style survey, you should be able to find a video where I talk about my style survey that I do in Wakora. It is very intensive. And part of it is asking about art. And what I do is I show a whole bunch of examples of art, abstract, landscape, um, edgy art, like crazy art, none smoking cigarettes art, whatever, all this crazy stuff. And I get a gauge for where they're at. Um, and then from there, that's really, really telling. Um, and then I might show them and talk a little bit more about kind of what they like. But what I, the key thing for me is I tell them before presentation, art's a really tricky piece for clients. It's a very personal element in the space. And I, I may not get it right on the first time, but I am going to present you with some options. <coughs> Excuse me. Excuse me. Um, and so basically I try to lay the groundwork and, and manage the expectations so that they don't lose their trust in me when I get to the point and I don't nail it, but they know that I believe it's really a personal thing and it might take time. So let's say it's, we're into phase three and we haven't really found the pieces. What normally happens is I don't slow down the process. If we haven't totally nailed down art yet, I say, let's get moving on purchasing everything else and doing our thing. Um, and then what I normally would do is let's say we get to phase three where it's installation time and art hasn't been totally figured out. The, the conversation I then have is, you know what, guys, um, while you guys are looking for those key pieces, why don't we just, why don't I just do something more affordable to get on your walls right now? I, um, I can have you approve those pieces beforehand, or if you want, I can just go for it. Most of the times clients say, just go for it. But if I tell them that I'm not going to go crazy, so I'm going to determine, do you want me to get home sense frames? Uh, do you want me to get CB2? Ideally now Ikea frames are just not acceptable to me. They used to be my go-to. Now I just think that you can tell the quality. They're too thick. They're too this, they're too that for me. So I really try to at least push more of a like pottery barn, CB2, crate and barrel frame. Cause those are a little, look a little nicer. And then most of the time clients just say, you know what? Yeah, just go ahead and put placeholder art. And I just say, you know what? It's not going to be a huge investment. And you can you can take the time it takes to find you those perfect pieces. And then you can swap them out. And normally what happens is clients get really fixated on certain things like rugs, art, because they don't see it as a whole. And I think we all know this, but clients don't know this. And we need to tell them that you, you don't always want to fixate too much on certain key things because not every thing in the room has to be a showstopper. And sometimes things like art, once they see it in the context of the entire room, like you were able to do in your mind's eye, but they can't, they're just going to say, oh my God, and I actually really love the art. I didn't think it was going to work, but I really love it. And in my experience, that's pretty much what happens all the time. 
So I hope that answers your question. All right. Um, this is about how much I recorded last time, by the way, guys, when I realized I was not recording and I'm gearing on an hour already here almost. Um, anyway. <laughs> okay. Sandra. Hi, Michelle. My question is how much time did you devote to marketing your business when you first started out? Any suggestions, suggestions on the best place to focus your marketing, Facebook ads, friends and family attending events. Oh, Sandra, I wish I had a better, clearer answer for you on this. Cause I'm going to be real. I, the most I ever spent was $450 on a one-time ad. I ended up getting one random client from it, but that is definitely not what I would suggest you do. I've been talking about doing Facebook ads for a long time. I think I personally think that's where you should spend it. If you were going to spend it, that's where I would go. I just haven't had time to think about it or focus on it. But uh, for me, what I did, what I started out doing was in Toronto, um, there are neighborhood Facebook groups. So I'm in East York. There's an East York uh, Facebook group. There's a Leslieville Facebook group. There's an Upper Beaches Facebook group. And these Facebook groups have like, some of them have 5,000. Some of them have 20,000. They're massive. And this was again, two, two and a half years ago. But what I did, and this was extremely effective. It was extremely effective an extremely effective strategy for a newbie who is really trying to learn on the, on the job or as you're building a business, I would say it's probably not an effective strategy if you are looking to target super high paying clients. But for me, uh, as my early learning curve and trying to, you know, learn things as I went, this was extremely effective. Uh, but basically I would read the rules of the Facebook group and it would say, uh, businesses are allowed to post once a week or every Friday, or twice a week, or twice a month. I would put it in my calendar. I would create copy that felt really kind of, um, didn't feel too salesy, just felt very like conversational to show my personality and then to kind of direct them somewhere and say, book a discovery call. And I'm telling you pretty much, I feel like almost every time I posted in a group, I got a discovery call out of it. But that is not a strategy I would do now with my new goal of higher paying clients. Um, aside from that, I, I, I really didn't do much other than get really visible, create a really great website. Uh, I started a YouTube channel. I eventually got the courage to post it on my own Facebook group. And, and then from there you get a good client, you hopefully build and get better, better clients over time. And those clients tell friends, and then it really just snowballs from there. Um, I didn't go to any events. I did do a couple workshops early on. So I did three workshops and it was, uh, you know, the five steps you need to do before decorating your home. But again, anybody who's going to a workshop like that is a DIY client. So they're really not going to end up being, I did get a couple clients from that, but again, they were lower budget clients. They were not, they were not the type of client I'm after now. So it really depends on your goals and where you're at, but to be honest, I feel like I've had a lot of really great luck. <laughs> um, and I don't really have any real silver bullet answer for that. Okay. This is officially new questions that I did not answer earlier today. Alicia, I'm wondering how you handle clients who like to be overly involved in the process. They bring you in for a reason, but every step of the way they are throwing something else into the mix, whether it be an item they want to incorporate or an additional upgrade they want to add in. How do you kindly and professionally stick to the original scope of a project without feeling like you're not pleasing the client? Okay, so 
Alicia, I feel you so hard. I've had a couple of clients like this very early on that had just really killed my spirit. And at some points I I just started to feel like a glorified shopper. And okay, so I think that it's really important to get to know your clients. So one of the questions I ask clients in the lead form is how involved do you want to be in the process? Most people say like middle ground. If somebody says they want to be involved in every single decision, then, then that might kind of perk you up a little bit to try to dig a little bit more. Um, I don't, I, I'm going to be real. I don't really have the true answer for you, but I'm going to say that this seems to be getting less of an issue for me. I feel like higher paying clients don't seem to be as bad at this. I also, for me in the consultation, I've realized that finding out like trying to ask questions early on about how much they know about like, where do you shop for things um, is a question I ask in my style survey. Um, I would like a client who says they don't know. They really don't know. The clients that are the best clients are the clients that don't really know where to find stuff. Clients who probably don't own a house and home magazine because these clients have a lot of opinions. So you want to work with people, or at least I do, who seem to have no time, really don't know where to shop for things, and really seem like they don't have that many strong opinions. And for me, I think early in the consultation and some of the work I haven't figured out yet, but in the consultation, I try to show as many, my new, my new kind of overarching idea is that I need to give as many ideas in that consultation to see how they respond. And I want the clients who are going to be excited about most of the things I say. And I want clients who, um, and, and this has got me thinking now, I want to probably ask some probing questions about like, what have you been doing to date to find your furniture and what's your style? Also asking where they shop for clothes is another thing to ask. Like depending on where they shop for clothes can tell you a lot about, um, what kind of what their style is on that front, but I don't really have the answer, but I will say that I have had clients send me a light fixture and most of the time it's hideous. And my answer to that has been, um, you know, just thank you so much. I'll consider that. And then I'll then at presentation say, I did consider that light, but it really wasn't working for X, Y, and Z. Um, And then I would say, you know, I would probably have to intervene and just say like, you know, it's really important to me that uh, you let me kind of do my thing. And then at some point, I'd probably have to say, like, maybe this isn't a good fit. Uh, but I don't I haven't really had to go to that point yet. And I have been bulldozed numerous times with clients. But now I have kind of new, new um, standards that I, I would like to think that I would uphold. But I don't have a clear cut answer for you, Alicia. I'm sorry. All right, Joe, I would be very interested in the answer to this. Just starting out and have clients who are exactly like this. Oh, okay. So this was a follow-up to Alicia's question. Um, I'm not trying to take it personally because they're just starting out a partnership too. So getting to know each other's tastes, my business is targeted at designing and staging property for investors. Look forward to the answers. Okay, Joe and Alicia, listen to my Carla Aston if you haven't. The last episode, um, she has a really cool process. Now, it's pretty intensive and it's, I'm going to create an offshoot of this, but uh, what she does is she provides even 
further ideas after the consultation to see how people respond to it. Because if they're not responsive to her ideas or open to them, then she knows that maybe like it's not the best fit. So, um, and I'm going to be the first to say, Joe, I take things. One of my problems is that I take way too many things personally. And when people start sending me links to things for, you know, what about this? What about this? I know that I've lost control of the design process and it makes me feel like I'm failing the client. And truth be told, I do partially feel like there is a level of control and mistrust that's happening and it's important to get things back on track. So I don't have the the clearest answers for that at this point, but uh, I hope to figure out some way to deal with that and hopefully build the trust early on so that doesn't happen. All right, Christy, I was wondering with your recent new build client, did you charge your regular consultation fee when you met with them to learn the scope of work or was a phone call all that was needed to put together your proposal? I just got an email today for a renovation additional client. Okay, so I would definitely suggest listening, if you haven't, uh, to my episode podcast with Elizabeth Scruggs. So she, I basically talked to her about kind of some of the things I should be doing with regards to this type of project. But to answer your question, I had a discovery call. And then what we decided to do, I suggested that we meet at their, so my new build happened to be their second home. And so I suggested that I meet in their home in Toronto where we could kind of, they could take me through their home and tell me the things that they like, some of the things they, you know, and it helped get me, uh, help me understand them a little bit more. I did not charge for that. It was really me trying to drill down to um, learn about the scope of what they really wanted me to do. And they also sent me a series of questions that they wanted me to answer. So, you know, I probably should have charged for that. But at the same time, I didn't feel like I didn't give them any true value. I mean, yes, okay. I gave them a proposal and it took me the time. I understand that. But I didn't have the comfort level for me, for me, everything's all about confidence, like gaining the confidence to charge a certain rate. And for me, I, in order to feel, to say those words with confidence, I need to kind of earn it in my own mind. So with them, I did not charge for that consultation. And the output of it was I put together a proposal and I ended up the fee, the service fees for me helping them was about 15 K And then I talked them through it on the phone and they also asked for a couple of references, which I provided. And then they decided, yeah, we're going to go forward. So that's kind of what I did. Um, This is going to be a real learning curve for me. Um, And, but I think at the end of the day, you do what feels comfortable for you. And if you feel comfortable charging because you think you can add great value in the consultation, then you should totally charge. Um, and I think that most people who have been doing this for years are going to tell you, you should charge. But at the end of the day, I feel like confidence is a huge selling factor and being able to kind of get a client bought in. And if I don't feel the confidence behind asking for something or whatever, then I'm going to struggle and it's going to show all over my face. So I opted not to. All right, Joe, wait, hold on. 
Okay. Uh, yeah, Joe again. Uh, my question would be, how do you go? How did you go about deciding your name for your new business? Uh, just use name initials. Keep it simple. Would be interested in hearing your views. Okay. I, I'm. This is another passionate topic. I wasted a good two months trying to come up with a name. First of all, it's really hard to be original anymore. Every freaking great name I came up with existed, and it just didn't even matter. I mean, yes, your your business name matters, but at the end of the day, you just got to get started. And for me, I I finally just decided, you know what, any of the designers that I admire, most of the designers that I admire, use their name. So Emily Henderson, Sarah Richardson, um, even Studio McGee. I mean, it's not necessarily Shea McGee designs, but it's, it's still using their name. So I just felt like, you know what, I'm going to brand me and I did it, and I'm really glad I did. You know, there are some mixed thoughts on, you know, if you ever want to have some sort of um, buyout plan and sell your business to somebody kind of like as an exit strategy, then having your name be your business is not the best idea for that. But, you know, there's so many brands out there that start without and just are successful because they just got started and they didn't waste their time on details like this. And this is an example of don't waste too much of your energy because there's so many things that are going to change from the time that you decide to launch your business to the logo, to the website that you could always rebrand at when something comes to you that feels right. So just at the end of the day, just start with your name. If that's the easiest thing you can come with, start doing the work and then let it all come um, organically as it, as it needs to. It's a great example of not putting too much energy in something that yes, it matters, but it, in the grand scheme of things, nobody's going to know who you are early on anyways. And you could always rebrand, you know, six months after you launch your business, you know, a year after you launch your business. All right. Uh, let's see here. Sorry guys. Okay. Scope creep. Nikki says, yes, scope creep help. Also not being afraid to bill for going over estimated hours, freight and charging your client for it. Uh, still struggling this despite Veronica's awesome videos of why you should. Okay. So I have the new mentality scope creep. Anytime somebody brings up scope creep, it's kind of like, that's great. So an example is a powder room, a client didn't have it in in the original scope and just Basically, anytime somebody brings up something new to you, say, you know what, that's really great. Let me let me get back to you on that, and I can figure out, you know, whether we can just roll it into this project, and I'll just, um, you know, send you an additional contract for that, or we can totally do that. But what we're going to do for that is, I'm just going to bill you hourly. Maybe we'll do a lump sum, but don't don't say you're going to roll it into your existing hours and let them know how it impacts it later. Unless it's something so very insignificant, like, you know what, could I also have a rug? Okay, you know what, that's fine. But if a new room's added, treat it as a new project. Tell them I need to assess whether I can roll this in at the same time because of my project load or whether we need to do what we're doing now and then do it later. But still just tell them that you're going to get back to them. Because the last thing you need to do, if you could just train your brain to respond that way, then you can step back, think clearly, and not just try to be you know, approving the client and giving them what you think they want to hear, because then you can have time to think about it and then respond accordingly without being more reactionary to to it. So it's like everybody says, like scope creep is good because there's more work, but it is a bit, um, 
uh, it can just kind of throw you off a little bit. Um, now going over estimated hours. So what I do if I go over estimated hours is when I get to presentation, I normally will have assessed the hours to see where I'm at. And I'm at the point now where generally I'm, I'm pretty under my hour. I'm looking pretty good as far as time. And then I'll say, okay, um, you know, we're going to do one round of revisions. And then I might say, just as a heads up, like this is where I'm at hourly. And, uh, you know, if, if after this round of revisions, we go into more, then it's going to incur additional hours and I'm going to have to bill hourly. It's and at the end of the day, clients, when they do think they're being billed hourly, they don't want to go crazy and take more time than it takes. Um, so it's just, it's all about managing the expectations and not just randomly throwing it on them. So you really want to be checking your hours weekly so that you can be raising the alarm bells. Like, you know what? I'm already three, I'm only halfway through the project, but I've already gone through three quarters of the hours and, you know, assess, okay, is it something I could have done better? Maybe you didn't do something efficiently and you can be true to yourself on that. But if it's really, you know what? This, this, and this happened, and this is why it's taking more. I just want to let you know that I'm getting closer to the hours I was expecting, and we may have to go into billable hours after you know we get to a certain point. Managing expectations is the key. And I'm a little bit of the mentality that if I don't properly manage those expectations, then it's not fair to me to just kind of spring that on a client. So I have to hold myself accountable to that too. Freight and charging your client for it. Um... I don't know why we wouldn't. So, but I mean, I can appreciate, I, I don't see at the end of the day, I, I just call it shipping, but it's, it's, it's shipping. It's going to your receivers. It's going to get all sh- um, delivered in one lump sum. And it's all about the fact that it's all going to go into one place. You don't have to be home for random deliveries. They're going to check for and inspect for all the damage. And then it's all going to come on one day and you're going to come home to a reveal. Um, I know it's, I haven't had a problem. I, to be honest, I talked to, as soon as you kind of mentally accept certain things and you go, yeah, no, this makes sense. And a client will pay this. I I truly believe our ability to believe in certain concepts, whether it's, I can make a lot of money. I can charge for this. I am worth this. Your ability to be able to believe it will really impact your ability to sell it and your ability for it to just happen. I can't explain that in anything else other than when you believe it yourself, um, you're going to be able to get clients to pay for it. And Nikki, I will say it's all about talking about it in the consultation. It gets harder for you to throw that on a client if you only tell them that at the presentation. If you tell them that in the consultation, you're allowing them to make the decision whether that's the type of relationship or service that they even want. Like, oh, is that how a designer works? I, ugh, that's not really, that seems like a lot. Well, you know, Mary, Mary's my client right now in this situation. You know what, Mary? I I understand. It, it does seem like a lot of money, but I'm going to tell you why it's so important. It's all going to go to one place. It allows me to... Uh, not have to come to your home to inspect everything every time it comes, which ends up being almost the same amount of time to have me doing that. And it's all going to show up on one day. And to be honest, I've done a number of projects that we, I didn't do this way. And unfortunately this is really important to my process and I'm not real. I'm not willing to take a project unless 
this is how we work and this is part of my process. And to be honest, clients just kind of go, okay, that's how it's done. And so the key is talking about it in the consultation and laying the groundwork early. So yes, it's important not to all of a sudden spring up that, that random fee that they didn't expect to happen, you know, a month or two after they started working with you, it's managing those expectations early on. All right. My last question here is how many leads or inquiries do you get a month? And, um, I'm actually going to bring up my spreadsheet to tell you this. And now I'm a little nervous. I'm still recording <laughs> because it, let's just be real. Last time I thought I was recording, I wasn't. So I want to make sure I still see this happening, but okay. So how many leads or inquiries do you get a week, month, year? What is the average? And what is your conversion rate? How many do you get to go forward after initial consult that turns into a project? How are most clients finding you? Okay, so I actually pulled up my spreadsheet and I just wanted to make sure that the numbers were tallying correctly. Um, so for, for, I'm going to tell you how, kind of what this month is looking like. Um so this month I've had three leads. In September I had six leads. August three. July. Okay, so July was a doozy, and I don't really know why, but it was. Um, uh, in July I had ten leads. June seven. May only one. April. Four. And I'm just going to stop there because I'm going to stop boring you with all of that. But that's just kind of recently. And keeping in mind about halfway through this year, I really started to gear down and um, add some additional information on my website to, to vet people a little harder. Um, but for more context, uh, 43 leads for the year, uh, 28 of them turned into discovery calls. So basically that means like sometimes... I want to get anybody on a discovery call, and that's kind of when I schedule the consultation. So a lead could be they sent an email, which is generally what happens, send a Facebook message, Instagram message, email. And from there, I basically say, da 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 this is how I work, and let's schedule a call. And then they either do or they don't. So 28% of people, or sorry, that's a lie, 28 people of the, the 48 leads actually schedule the discovery call. Um, so the conversion, that's only 65%. Um, then, uh, from discovery call to consultation, 19 of those people schedule the consultation. And I'm going to be honest, it seems like it's like I had a real good spin of the people that I get on a discovery call with. Um, I have a call tomorrow, actually. Uh, I've, I have a pretty good, I have a, well, that's not true. I have a 68% consultation, discovery call to consultation ratio. So then from there, um, of the 19 people I did discovery calls for, or, or sorry, consultations for, 18 of them I seem to have done a proposal for. And then of the people, okay, so the, the proposals to the clients I only have had nine clients this year. Is that accurate? It's got to be. But so it just goes to show how little clients you actually need in order to make decent money if um, you watch my video today. Uh, but basically, 47% of people become a project. 47, so 
consultation, project to consultation percentage is 47%. I'd say that's pretty good. Let me just double check. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's pretty good. I would say, I, I think 50% conversions pretty decent. Um, I would say if your conversion is too high, you're charging not enough. So realistically now I will say this now, what I do very early on is I start throwing out numbers before I go into the proposal information. So what I learned from listening to some sales podcasts is that the more somebody seems budget conscious, so sometimes we get leads where people are very like, oh, I don't have a lot. And you just know because they filled out like five grand on your lead form, for example. Those people, it's way more important to be talking about how much they might be looking to spend early on. And I'm going to throw that out in the discovery call early on because I want them to know and tell me right then and there whether they're even willing to do that because I don't want to waste my time. So what I'll, you know, I might say, well, just for context, uh, my minimum project fee is $5,000. And, you know, minimum, like for furnishings for a room, you might be looking at this. And then I would say, um, you know, if that's not something that makes sense to you, then, then maybe we just do a consultation. At this point, I'm not super keen on even doing like e-design, to be honest. I just would rather focus my energies on, on where it matters most. But, um, but you really want to lead the, weed those people out early on. Um, okay, so I want to make sure. How are most clients finding you? So most of my, okay, so let's see. Okay, I'm just trying to figure out what my spreadsheet's doing. Okay, of my consultations, 42% of those people are repeat clients. So that's important to know. Uh, 47 of my consult, 47% of my consultations are referral. So for me, repeat and referral is of the highest, um, of the highest of all search. People just searched me online. 7% Facebook is about 16%. Um, and then friends and family, which is real low now because that's just not a thing I do really anymore. But yeah, so so that kind of gives you a little more context. But for me, most people say that somebody referred, said my name most of the time. Whether it's somebody I've never heard of in a Facebook group, I, it makes no sense to me, but it happens. Um, okay, uh, I, I lie. There's one more question because I it was I copied and pasted it weird. I love a rundown of what happens during your consultation from when they schedule to how you prepare uh, to what happens step by step in the consultation. Um, to, for me, it's nothing really spit like crazy as far as like regimented, but, uh, you know, before the consultation, the client gets homework, they get an email that says, put together your list of priorities of things you want to talk about. Uh, make sure you have some inspiration. I need to see inspiration. It's so important to me. I want to know, where you are on the style spectrum, are we even aligned at all? It's so important to me. I actually asked that in the lead form. Um, then the next thing is uh, send me some photos of your space before. That's just mostly nosiness. But Veronica made a good point where you don't want to ask for too much early, where they're almost expecting you to do some work before you even get there because I'm not doing that. And then I ask for their Wi-Fi password. When I show up, I literally just have, I have a checklist of things I make sure to bring. Um, and mostly I just show up with a pad and paper and I just say, I show up, I say, thanks so much. And I, 
you know, try to get right down to business. I set myself for a timer. So about a half hour before time's up, I get a, a, a timer so that it can just prompt me to basically say, okay, uh, time's of the essence here. And then I say, like, take me on a tour of your house. I want you to tell me what you like about each room, what you don't like. And then we'll just, you know, talk about some ideas and some thoughts and hopefully I can answer some of your questions. And then when we get to the end, I do take them through the contract. That's a new thing I started doing after I I talked with Kimberly Selden on her podcast. Um, And then I basically just start talking about next steps. I start throwing out things like, you know, installation. I talk about my process and I really just try to kind of lay the groundwork. And then we determine whether it makes sense for me to pull together a proposal for them. And then that's kind of it. And then the next step is I go home. I tell them in three or it depends on my schedule, but I tell them when they can expect the proposal and that, Uh, Now I mostly just send it. I don't get on a call, but I say I'm available if you want to talk about it. And then we go from there. And that's pretty much it. It's it's really not that too like step by step. It's really just that in a nutshell. Anyways, that was a big one. I really hope you guys enjoyed that. I'm thinking of doing more and more of those because I think I really enjoy them personally. Um, I hope that that was helpful. If you guys liked this episode, please give it the thumbs up. That's not true. (laughs) Subscribe. You can't thumbs up a podcast. I keep saying that. Um, And then subscribe and leave me a review if you're so compelled. And I'm not going to bore you with the spiel, but you know the drill. I want to talk to some people that are a big deal to me. And if they see that people are listening and leaving reviews then it just really helps. First of all, more people see the podcast and listen to it. And the more people that listen to it, the easier it will be to get some of these amazing, amazing people that I admire on my podcast. Anyways, guys, that's all I got for you for now. I I forced myself to do this a second time tonight because I don't think I'm gonna have time tomorrow and I really want to get this out this week. So that's all I got for you guys. Bye, homies. (laughs) 